Please turn once again in your Bibles to that passage that we just read from the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians and the fifth chapter. And the text for our sermon this morning comes from the 23rd verse. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Recently, I've been asked to officiate at a wedding and to provide some premarital counseling. And so I've been studying these things more in earnest and I wanted to preach this morning from this passage. This passage in the fifth chapter of Ephesians is like a wonderful tapestry in the Word of God. Because we see in this passage the interweaving of a few majestic teachings. These things are interwoven so that sometimes we are speaking about Christ, sometimes we're speaking about the husband in a marriage, sometimes we're talking about Christ's bride, the church, sometimes we're talking about a husband's wife, sometimes we're talking about the union between the man and the wife, sometimes we're talking about the union between Christ and the members of his body, even the church. And we also see in this interwoven fabric of our passage, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and how it is related to marriage, the institution of marriage. And so, as I say, it's really a wonderful tapestry as we see all these different things interwoven together, all the different colors and the patterns that we see interwoven here in this tapestry of our passage. And I do want to consider the passage at large because to really understand our text, we really have to understand the context, the passage, because even more so than other places in Scripture, here we see throughout the passage the unfolding of certain ideas repeated in different ways, but oftentimes teaching the same things, or perhaps teaching one thing and then expanding upon it. So here, in verse 23, we're talking about headship. The headship of both man, that is a husband, to his wife, but also Christ, the headship of Christ, to the church. Now, when we read our verse, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, immediately it should strike us the profundity of this headship because this marriage relationship is being likened to the very relationship between the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect, the invisible church. And so already we know that this headship is something profound, not something of little weight. And so when we come across this this word, the head, if we are diligent students of the Bible, we should immediately see 
that there are so many teachings of the Scripture that is packed into this concept of headship. So many things that are taught in Scripture that are so profound and so deep in respect to headship that it's a wonder that we would apply these things to the husband in a marriage. And so what I'd like to do this morning is consider three heads of doctrine, three aspects that we see, I think, from this text and from the passage at large, but as we focus upon this particular verse. And that is, first, necessarily, when we look at these words, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, necessarily we have to ask ourselves, well, what is meant here by this headship? What is headship? And that will be, Lord willing, the first head, (laughs) no pun intended. The second head of the sermon is, why? Why is the husband the head of the wife? Why did the Lord ordain it as such that the, the man should be the head of the woman in marriage? That would be the second head. The third head is, how does the husband exercise this headship? In other words, what does it look like as we look at the scriptural teaching and what this headship should be for the husband to his wife? How does it work itself out? What does it mean for the husband to exercise this headship over his wife? So these are the three heads. Again, what is headship? For we see in our passage is speaking about the husband is the head, Christ is the head. Secondly, why is the husband the head of the wife? And thirdly, how does the husband exercise that headship that he's been given from the Lord in his marriage? And so first, what is this headship that we see? Who was the first head when God had created man, as we read also from Genesis chapter 2 this morning? Who was the first head that God had made? We understand biblically that the first head was Adam. Adam, we say, was given this federal headship this representative headship that Adam represented in his headship all of mankind. And so what we read of here in the opening chapters of Genesis is that the Lord God puts Adam as the head, as a federal representation of all that would descend from him by ordinary generation, as it says in the Catechism, that the Lord is giving Adam a season of probation. It's a trial period. And what is Adam under trial to do? What is this probationary period about? It's about whether or not Adam, who is made good, who is made upright, who is made in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, it was about whether or not he would keep God's law, whether or not he would obey God, and not just in some respects, but in all respects, and not just for a season, but perpetually, would Adam be faithful in obeying God 
And that's really what was happening here in the opening chapters of Genesis. When we read that God told man that he could eat of all the trees of the garden, all the fruit from all the trees in the garden, except for one, that he was not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because in the day that he would eat thereof, he would surely die. And so again, this was the test that the Lord was putting before Adam to see if he would pass that test, if he would obey the Lord and keep his commandments. If Adam passed the test, if he met the requirements of this trial, what would happen? We say that he would be confirmed in that righteousness in which he was created. He would be confirmed even that his nature would be changed. Because you see, God made man perfectly upright, as we said, made him holy, made him righteous. But God made man in this state in such a way that he could change. To borrow the language from Augustine, Adam was created in a state where he was posse picare. That means in the Latin that he was able to sin. Adam was both able to sin, but also able not to sin. And as we have discussion with our Arminian friends, and they speak of free will, this is really the kind of free will that they're speaking of that Adam had in the garden before he fell into sin. That Adam was able equally either to sin or not to sin. We don't have that nature anymore because we fell into sin and our nature has changed. And again, as Augustine says, now is a fallen creature, fallen man, now is in a state of non passe, non picare. In other words, man is not able not to sin. Man necessarily must sin. And that's what it means to be a sinner. And so the Arminians are confused here about the state of man because they're mistaking the state of man in innocency for the state and condition which he is in now in the state of sin and corruption. But the point that I want to make here is that if Adam had fulfilled and passed this test from the Lord and perfectly obeyed him, he would have been confirmed in that righteousness such that his nature would be changed such that then he would come into a state we may call non passe picari, that Adam would not have been able to sin, and that all his children and his children's children and so on would be in the same state of nature, that they would not be able to sin, and that there would never be any sin. And what a wonderful thing that would have been. It's something that we can't even begin to, to imagine what that would have been like. But such was the trial that was before Adam to satisfy. And this trial, to our text here, is to say that this was a trial that Adam was passing through, not only for himself, but as the head of all of mankind, it was a trial not just for himself, but for all that would descend from him. And of course, as we all know, by our own experience and also by the Word of God, that sadly, 
the case was that Adam failed, that Adam did not pass this test, that Adam did not succeed in this trial, that he did not obey the Lord perpetually, that he did not keep God's law perfectly. And as we read in Genesis 2, in that day, surely Adam died. You might say, well, when I read the Bible, I see that Adam still lived after that. What does that mean that that he died? Well, he died just as we read earlier in the same book of Ephesians when it speaks about the reversal, that is the regeneration of us when we're born from above, born again. Then it uses the illustration that we come from death to life. And so for Adam, when it says that in that day he shall surely die, he did die in the sense that now his nature was corrupted and it was a nature of sin and death. And that indeed, though his physical body did not die in that day, yet his whole nature changed to a a nature of death such that one day he would also die bodily. This was the headship of Adam, the federal headship. And that's why we would say, as we are taught, that we also are guilty of that original sin that was committed in the garden. Because we, as it were, in the loins of our father Adam, committed this sin with him. Because again, this is what it means for Adam to be the head of all of us. As we have in the Catechism, that in his sin, we all fell with him in his first transgression. Or as the New England Primer puts it, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. And this is what headship means. Now, the good news of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is that there was a second Adam. There was a second Adam to come to make a second try at this trial, at this probation that the Lord had put Adam under. There was a second Adam that was to come that, like the first Adam, was also to be a head. He has this headship. And the second Adam was to come to fulfill that mission in which the first Adam failed. Who was the second Adam? The Lord Jesus Christ. And so the second Adam came not only to give his life as a ransom for many, but also, and so this is significant, also as the head, and so we're talking about the significance of this headship that we see in our text, Christ came as the second Adam so that as Christ would perfectly obey God's law, perfectly, completely, and perpetually, Christ now has fulfilled that obedience to God's law as our head that Adam failed to do. And so what does that mean for those that are in Christ? This is what we mean by the doctrine of justification. And we talk about all these theological terms, and they're biblical terms as well. But this is what we mean by justification. Justification means that we are made righteous in God's sight. 
we are made righteous. How are we made righteous? Not by what we've done in our own persons, because as sinners, non passe non picari, it's impossible for us not to sin. We can't help but to sin. But you see, God is a God who is so holy that he will in no way acquit the wicked. God will not wink at our sins and dismiss them like the world not only wishes, but presumes that he will do. But God can't do that because he's holy. Holy, holy, holy. There is this demand according to the justice that is in God for there to be a punishment for sin. If it's not punished on the cross, then it will be punished in hell. And so the righteousness that we have in our justification in no way is based upon our own works, the things that we do, but it's wholly upon the obedience and works of Christ. And so his righteousness is imputed to us. That is to say that his righteousness is reckoned to us or put to our account. We don't have any righteousness in our own account, but Christ transfers his righteousness to our account. And so that now... We are as righteous as Christ, as remarkable as that may sound. It's remarkable, of course, because there's no way we could have done that in our own person. But because of Christ's work of salvation, it is as if we ourselves perfectly and perpetually kept God's law, even in the same fashion that Christ did. That's what it means this justification that we have in Christ. This is the significance and the profundity of this headship. Not that that's the only sense of what it means for Christ to be head of the church, but that's what we're speaking to at the moment. And so then again, when we come to our text and we read these words, we should be taken aback. The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. That's so profound. How can such profundity of headship be assigned to the husband in a marriage? This headship is really a wonderful thing. And it's remarkable that in the same breath, the scripture here is saying that as Christ is the head of the church in all these profound ways, so the husband is the head of the wife. And let me just say here, in this flow of the passage, in our verse, when it starts with the word for, it's in reference to what came before it. And what came before it? Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. So you see, what our text is really addressing is the reason why wives should submit to their husbands. The reason that wives should submit to their husbands is because the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. What a marvelous thing this is. So is this something, this headship of the husband, is this something that the man has taken upon himself? Is this something that the man has invented himself? 
No. These things are freely given to him by the Lord God. They're not just something that someone made up. And these things, again, are very weighty and not just a light, trivial thing. And all of that, I tell you, is behind this concept of the wife submitting to the husband. All these profundities. Let's move on then to the second head. And that is, why then is the husband the head of his wife? Now we see this comparison that he's the head just as Christ is the head of the church. But why did the Lord give this headship to the man in a marriage? Well, to see this, perhaps more clearly, we should turn to another passage, which is in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you would turn there, please, I'm going to read the opening passage in this chapter. The context here is about the issue that Apostle Paul is dealing with, that women, when they pray or prophesy, should have their heads covered. That's the context here. But it's interesting to see how the Apostle argues for this. Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I deliver them to you. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonoreth his head. But every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered dishonoreth her head. For that is even all one as if she were shaven. For if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, for as much as he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. For as the woman is of the man, even so is the man also by the woman but all things of God. And so he makes this argument using what we call the polity or economy of creation, the order of creation, that God was pleased to make man first and then woman, that God was pleased to make man out of the dust of the earth, but the woman out of the rib of man, that God was pleased to do it this way. And of course, you know, There's no reason in itself that God couldn't have done it another way. But God was pleased to do it this way. This is how he made man. Made man first. Then he made woman. He made woman from man. And as it says here, neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. The woman was created for the man. Because in Genesis it says it's not good for man to be alone. So the woman was created for man. That's what it says both there in Genesis and here expressly in 1 Corinthians. 
It says in verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 11 that the man is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. Do you see? So, in an indirect way, you may say, the woman is the image and glory of God, but it's through the man. For it says that the man is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the man. And again, verse 8, the man is not of the woman, but the woman came from the man. And again, verse 9, neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman was created for the man. God was pleased then to do it this way. To do it this way. And so later on in the Genesis account, after Adam and Eve fell into sin, when the Lord is speaking to the woman, he says to her, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. There's some people that take this last phrase, that the husband shall rule over the wife, as occurring as the result of the fall. That is to say that because of the fall into sin, now the husband's going to rule over the wife. But I don't think that's what it's saying here in this uh, 16th verse of Genesis. Because the phrase right before it, it says that the woman's desire shall be to the husband, and then that last phrase is in relationship to it, and he shall rule over thee. And what does it mean then when it says that the wife's desire shall be to her husband? Does that just mean that the wife will love her husband and enjoy him and enjoy fellowship with him and this desire of the wife will be satisfied in marriage? No, that's not what it means when it says that her desire will be to her husband. It's not just that she has a desire for him or she loves him or something like that. No, this language here, in the, in the original language, it's the very same thing that we see in yet the following chapter in Genesis. When Cain is tempted to murder his brother Abel, and the Lord speaks to him, counsels him. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, the Lord is speaking to Cain, and he says, well, let me start in verse 6, And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth? Why are you angry? Of course, contextually, we know he was angry because he was envious of his brother. He hated his brother just because the Lord favored his brother's sacrifice and not his own sacrifice. And because of that envy, remember, envy is what also murdered the Lord of glory. But because of that envy, Cain wanted to murder his own brother, Abel. And so the Lord confronts Cain and says in verse 6, Why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? In other words, why you have this, this sad, drooping expression on your face? And what's the Lord's counsel to Cain? He says, If you do well, will you not be accepted? You'll be all right. If you just persevere in doing good things, you'll be accepted. And if you do not well, here's the thing, sin lies at the door. In other words, sin is right there. You know, this is a personification, but as if 
All you have to do is open your door, and it's right there. He's right there. He's just lying at your door. And then the Lord says, And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. Do you see how this phrase parallels the other one in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16? It's really the same language. And it is the same in the original language as well. And so here in chapter 4, the sense is, Cain, if you do well, you'll be accepted. But if you don't do right, the right thing, sin is, boy, buddy, sin is just right there waiting for you. And its desire is for you. What does it mean that sin's desire is for Cain? What's sin's desire always? Is to have dominion over us. To lord it over us. To be a slave master to us. And so the Lord is warning Cain. Sin is right there. And his desire is to rule over him. But you, Cain, must rule over him instead. Now, of course, the tragedy of this account is that Cain did not rule over sin, and he opened that door, and sin came in, and sin did take dominion over him. And so Cain murdered his own brother just for envy. But I tell you, this is the same language that we have in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, in respect to the husband and the wife, when it says that the wife's desire shall be to her husband, but nonetheless the man shall rule over her. And so the sense of it is that God created man first, then created woman. He created woman for man. God ordered it such that the man would be the head of the wife, of his wife, but because of sin, Women will want to rebel against that created order and instead rule over the husband. But even though that will be their sinful desire, nonetheless, the husband will rule over the wife. And so the message here to Eve is that this is going to require some humility for her in order to resist that natural spirit of rebellion against her husband. And so, the husband's rule over the wife is not the result of sin. It's the wife's desire to usurp it that's the result of sin, but not his rule. How do we know that? We know that also because, again, this polity of creation. God made man first. God made woman for the man. And that's the argument, going back to 1 Corinthians, that the apostle's making here. I would have you know, Paul says, that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Now, this is clear, but the thing that is not always so clear is that people think that that means that the man has license now for tyranny because he has this headship. And also, People think that this means that the woman is inferior because she is to submit to the headship of her husband. But look at this verse, this third verse of the 11th chapter of 1 Corinthians. What does it say? It not only says that the man is the head of the woman, but it also says that the head of Christ is God. 
Are we to say that Christ is inferior to God? They're of the same essence, equal in power and glory. The triune God, that all three persons are equal in power and glory. There is none that is of greater glory. No person in the Trinity is of greater glory than the other. They're equal. Their essence is the same. The substance of of their being is the same. And so, in the same respect, we could say that about husband and his wife. They both have the same human nature. And so the woman is not inferior, ontologically, we'd say, and that is, in her being, she's not inferior just because God made the husband to be the head of the wife and the wife is to submit to that headship. That doesn't make her ontologically inferior. Because if we were to say that, it'd be as if to say, that Christ is somehow less divine than the Father. We see throughout the Gospels of Christ's willing submission to the Father in all things, do we not? I mean, that's, that characterizes his ministry. Even when he was praying in so much anguish that he sweated, as it were, beads of blood. But nonetheless... He said, not my will, but thine be done. So clearly, Christ was submissive to his heavenly Father. But again, does that mean that Christ has less divinity or is not of the same substance or is inferior in glory or power to the Father? No, of course not. If you were to say that, you basically are speaking heresy. And so in the same way, The man is the head of the wife, but not as if to say that he is ontologically superior to her, that he has some superiority over her in his being. They are equal in their humanity before the Lord. God created man, male and female, he created them. And so, why is the husband the head of his wife? It's just simply because... God was pleased to make it that way in the creation of man. That was the way that the Lord did it. Now, let's turn to the third and final head, which is how then does the husband exercise this headship? And to do this, I want us to turn back to Ephesians, to our passage in Ephesians chapter 5. And I want you to see here, as hard as it might be for the wife to submit to her husband, and men, you know, we should be kind and merciful and patient with her because it is a struggle because she's a sinner just like we are. And so we should be patient and tender with her. But here's the point. When we speak of the headship of the husband and his exercise of that headship over the wife, it's not intended for his own selfish gain, but rather the opposite, even as Christ came as a servant. You know, Christ washed his disciples' feet. And so, in the same way, the husband 
is the head, not for his own self-interests, but rather to serve the wife in her interests. That's what this headship means. And again, we know that. I'm not making this up because the scripture here, the word of God, compares the headship of the man to the wife as the headship of Christ to the church. And so all we have to do is ask ourselves, well, how did Christ exercise his headship over the church? And that teaches us then how husbands are to exercise their headship over their wives. The headship of the man is not some carte blanche way for the man to get his way in arguments that he may have with his wife. It's not like a trump card where they argue and the man says finally, well, you know, I am the head. That's not what it's about. In fact, it's the opposite of that. It's about the husband serving the wife. Serving like Christ humbled himself. It was an act of humiliation for Christ to wash the disciples' feet. And then he says, and so now you go and do likewise. It applies to the relationship that we have as brothers and sisters in the Lord, but it also applies because we're taught here that the husband is to be like Christ in how he exercises his headship over the wife. The headship of the husband is not just for his own selfish interests, but rather it's to minister to his wife, even as Christ ministered to the church. It's to minister to his wife and his family. That's what this headship is about. And don't you see, if there were more husbands that understood this and prayerfully sought to love their wives in humility... Maybe the wives would not have such difficulty in submitting to the husbands. The headship that she's submitting to is not at all anything like tyranny. It's not at all anything that's supposed to be whimsical by the man. It's not at all anything that's supposed to be arbitrary by the man. The man is not to command her to do things arbitrarily or whimsically. That's not what headship means. How do we know that? Look at this passage. In fact, in this very same verse, the verse of our text, when it says that the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, it goes on in the same breath to say, and he, that is Christ, is the Savior of the body. And it goes on in even more... uh, striking ways, but even already here in the 23rd verse, we already get this picture in this tapestry, the tapestry now again, this interweaving of the headship of the man to his wife and the headship of Christ to the church, and so Christ is the savior of the body. Well, you see, as we're interweaving these threads in the tapestry, the implication is, and so the husband should be like in a certain sense, a savior to his own wife. He should be his wife's protector and defender, one who nourishes his wife and takes care of her. Isn't that what's pictured here by Christ being the savior of the body? 
verse 24, Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let their wives be to their own husbands and everything. But I want to focus more on the headship, so I want to focus more on the husbands. But you, again, you see how these things are all so interwoven together. And so in verse 25, this is what it means. This is our third head. This is what it means for the husband to exercise his headship. It is this, that he should love his wife. Oh no, another comparison with Christ. Even as Christ also loved the church. And Christ gave himself for her, for the church. This is what that headship looks like. How is the husband to be the head of the wife? Well, it says as Christ is the head of the church. Well, how is Christ the head of the church then? By loving her. By loving her so much that he gave himself for her. Christ gave everything for the church. He gave everything. Even to sacrifice himself on the cross. Even when those that he was dying for were his enemies. Or those who hated him. Christ died even for them. As we see in another place in Scripture, it would be a marvelous thing for a man to lay down his life for his friends. But the gospel is about Christ laying down his life even for his enemies, for those who despised him, for those who hated him. And so what do we see here in the teaching about marriage in this passage? We see at its very kernel, nothing less than the gospel itself. And this is what it looks like for the husband to exercise his headship over the wife. He's to love her, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. And then he goes on to say in verse 26, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. Now, it's still talking about Christ and the church, but again, you can't mistake. The implication is that in the same way, the husband is to love his wife. Christ sanctifies and cleanses his bride with the washing of water by the word, so that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. And then, to make it clear, immediately after that it says, in verse 28, So ought men to love their wives. What does this teach us? From the Word of God. Doesn't this teach us that it's the husband's duty in the exercise of his headship to so love his wife that he washes her with the Word of God, that he teaches her from the Scripture, that he encourages her in her walk and faith before the Lord? 
even that she may grow in the grace of Christ, that she may be sanctified, that in some particular way, in some sense, we would say that the husband has a role in the sanctification of his wife. I don't see how we can escape that conclusion from this juxtaposition of what Christ is doing for the church and likening it unto the love of the husband for the wife. And so, Christ makes his bride spotless. It's like a launderer that bleaches out all these filthy spots on the robe of his bride. Christ cleanses and sanctifies and washes the church even so that there's no wrinkle. The sense that I saw there from commentaries is wrinkles as of old age. That Christ's love is a renewing love. It's a love of life that brings life as if free of wrinkles. And then it says, or any such thing. So there are so many ways in which Christ beautifies his bride that they're all not enumerated here. So wonderful is his love for the church. And then it says, but that the church should be holy and without blemish. Here, I think, is an allusion to the old animal sacrifices. When the people of God in the old times were commanded to sacrifice the animals, they were told, don't offer to God your lame beast. You know, it's like, I'll get rid of this lame animal that has no use for me. No. And they were also commanded, don't sacrifice your animals with blemishes. Again, that was considered an inferior part of the stock. But instead, they were to give unto the Lord, as it were, the cream of the crop, the best that they had. And that is what was to be sacrificed unto the Lord. And these words here are alluding to that, that the bride also would be holy and without blemish, even like that pure paschal lamb, without spot or blemish. Verse 28, So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. And then I'm running out of time, but he goes on for the rest of the passage here to talk about another comparison, and that is that the husband should love his wife even as he loves his own body. Because again, there's this comparison made. There's a union between Christ and the members of Christ, that is the church, and in a similar fashion, there's a union between the husband and the wife. You see again how all these things are interwoven? And as I say, we're out of time to really explain that further, but it's just another way in which this passage is comparing these same things over and over again. And this is how we can understand what this headship of the husband is all about. I'll just close with an illustration of how this works in my counseling for marriage. I've been reading this book by a pastor named Tim Keller who started a church in Manhattan, New York. And the Lord has blessed that work in a surprising and marvelous way. 
He's written a book on marriage. His wife, Kathy, also writes sections of it. And she gives this illustration. And I'll just end with this illustration. She says, In the late 1980s, our family was comfortably situated in a very livable suburb of Philadelphia where Tim, her husband, the pastor, held a full-time position as a professor. Then he got an offer to move to New York City to plant a new church. He was excited by the idea, but I was appalled, the wife speaking. Raising our three wild boys in Manhattan was unthinkable. Not only that, but almost no one who knew anything about Manhattan thought that the project would be successful. I also knew that this would not be something that Tim would be able to do as a nine-to-five job. It would absorb the whole family and nearly all of our time. It was clear to me that Tim wanted to take the call, but I had serious doubts that it was the right choice. I expressed my strong doubts to Tim, who responded, Well, if you don't want to go, then we won't go. And she says, Oh, no, you don't. You are not going to put this decision on me. That's abdication. So she recognized his role, his headship. But nonetheless, it was very proper for her to express her concerns and her doubts in the decision-making process. And indeed, any husband would be a fool not to listen to the counsel of his wife before he makes such a weighty decision as this one was. She goes on to say to him, If you think this is the right thing to do, then exercise your leadership and make the choice. It's your job to break this logjam. It's my job, she says, to wrestle with God until I can joyfully support your call. And so, she says, Tim made the decision to come to New York City and plant Redeemer Presbyterian Church. The whole family, my sons included, consider it one of the most truly, quote, manly, unquote, things that my husband ever did <clears throat> because he was quite scared but he felt a call from God. At that point, Tim and I were both submitting to the roles that we were not perfectly comfortable with, but it is clear that God worked in us and through us when we accepted our gender roles as a gift from the designer of our hearts. Let us close in prayer. O blessed Lord God and Heavenly Father, we do confess whether we are the wives to submit or the men to love and to lead, that all these things are beyond our own ability in and of ourselves, for we are selfish and we are sinful. But O God, by your grace, you can do wonderful things, things beyond our own ability, even through us. It may be so, O Lord, that in our own respective marriages, we may glorify you, even as our marriage may be a picture of that loving relationship between Christ and his bride, the church. And so, Lord, 
may the gospel of Jesus Christ ever shine throughout the whole world, but even in this particular fashion in our own marriages. Hear us now and be with us throughout the remainder of this day, this Christian Sabbath day, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.